Welcome to the Private Equity Value Creation Podcast, where we interview leading investors, operators, bankers, and advisors to help you answer one question. How do we increase the enterprise value of our companies? My name is Shiv Narayanan, and each episode, I will dive deep with a guest to help you become a better value creator and capital allocator. So with that said, let's jump right in and let's get started with today's episode. Hey, everybody, welcome to a very special episode of the Private Equity Value Creation Podcast. As we approach the end of the year, we thought it'd be a great idea to get some of the best clips from all the guests that have been on the episodes so far. And what's really great for me is that I've known some of these people for many, many years, and it's been very rewarding to watch them share some of their best insights with you, our audience. And as we've produce more episodes and publish more episodes, we've also seen the audience grow. So I want to personally thank you for being a listener over these last 17 episodes. And we hope today's episode is a great reminder of the type of content and insights that you've been listening to over the last little while. And so with that said, I'll leave you to it. Enjoy this content and all the different clips inside. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if you're if your approach is creating more jobs in the market, that companies can employ those individuals and grow with them, then those people can also grow in their careers and work for their clients. Like inevitably you are growing alpha. It is going to happen over time, but you need LPs who think along that time horizon or look at investments in that way. And that's where it, that's your job is to find the right LPs that, that map to that type of a, of a, of a philosophy. Yeah. I mean, look, and um, if you think about impact investing in general, it's one of the largest, fastest growing parts of the market, um, right? So uh, we are increasingly, I think, I think people in general, LPs, driven by two things. One is just, hey, we want to, you know, if we have, if we're an asset holder, we want to invest in things that, that a lot of their values, and there are a lot of people with values that align with job creation. Right? Um, but I also think that a growing number of people are realizing, hey, you know, by doing this thing, I'm going to make more money, and those are the people we want. We want to talk to people who believe that by creating this impact, we're going to make you more money. Because at the end of the day, you know, there was just there was just this article today. Uh, you know, and I talk about this a lot. You know, there is a war for capital, right? How you use your capital. If you're an individual, what products you buy. If you're an LP, what it funds you invest in. It is you're making an impact. You're making an impact either. Uh, to invest in traditional businesses that are likely, you know, harmful to, to, to the world economy or to the world in general, or you're making a conscious decision to invest in, in funds and companies and products that are contributing to better things. In society. And and that that is something that people inherently want to do, I believe. Um, and and I think what we do and what other impact managers do is is, is really critical. Yeah, I think you said something interesting there, which is that there is a war for capital, like the global dry powder, I think it's like 2.5 trillion or something like that. And so you have all this capital chasing after limited assets. And I would think that when you're in, in a deal cycle and competing with other private equity firms and they hear this unique message from you versus just a, a standard private equity firm that's trying to just drive value in the traditional ways, your message likely resonates with a big section of the market and you likely win deals because of that. And what are the things that institutional investors, strategic investors, the lenders, all of these folks that are part of this ecosystem are looking at when they're evaluating a business to decide whether or not to invest in that business? 
I love that question. And this is Captain Obvious. You know, your listeners are going to say, thank you, Captain Obvious, for coming and telling us these things. But here's the deal. Most entrepreneurs know these things, but they still don't execute on it. They let the day-to-day grind and just, you know, reactionary keep me from these things. Or they just don't know how to measure it. They don't understand the lens of an institutional buyer. So let me give you some of the top ones um, that really matter and that we can assess um, there's even really strong assessments out there. And, you know, we've built one that we're trying to, to to give to entrepreneurs to learn this. But let me tell you some of the main ones. Number one, growth. Are you having healthy growth? The relationship between your profitability, your EBITDA growth, your EBITDA margin and your, your revenue growth. Those are two different things. And of course, you know, and all your listeners that are in the SaaS world know the rule of 40 that's really kind of changed into the rule of 50 or the rule of 60. But it's the healthy relationship of growth, both revenue and EBITDA margin. Now, here's the deal, Shiv. It's growth against your cohort. It's not growth against another industry. If I'm a managed service provider, growth against a SaaS company, it's a growth against your cohort. That is huge because I've had companies that are not growing. I mean, year over year, their growth is going down, but compared to their competitors, they're doing a ton better. So growth is huge. A growing company, you must be it because investors are investing in the future in risk-adjusted future cash flow. That's a big one. And I know that's where you're focused. And when we see a company that's struggling with their, their lead volume, their conversion rate, that's a that's a real indication you're not going to give me as an investor that predictable growth I want. So that that is just huge. With that is the quality of your income streams. You know, have you got mainly, you know, recurring revenue or is it reoccurring revenue? What's the combination of any one-time revenue and your recurring revenue? It's the quality of your revenue centers. And the gross margin tells a lot about that, Shiv. If you've got certain areas of your business that are consulting, which are awesome now, we're seeing CAS, consulting as a service, trade, you know, in some of the ranges as, as software as a service or infrastructure as a service. But it's that it's that blend of the right income streams that are super attractive to these investors and how they're growing and what the future is. I think that's really one of the key things that founders of companies need to look at more often is that you don't need to go on this like VC hamster wheel where your valuations keep increasing. And then for you to actually have a meaningful outcome from that business, you now need to grow that business significantly more than if you bootstrapped it and you slowly grew it over time. And I think those incentives are like not fully aligned for, for the founder versus what the VC investor wants to do because they want to deploy their capital and, and, and get rid of the dry powder and actually grow it as quickly as possible and whereas the founder may not even be able to hit those numbers because they're unrealistic. Yeah, the number of conversations I've had with entrepreneurs with exactly that topic, I, I you know, I can't even tell you how many. In that, you know, the less there are less sophisticated entrepreneurs that are just trying to hit a valuation number. And I want to be a hundred million valuation. <laughs> and I yeah. say to them, what are you talking about? It, it doesn't mean anything until the end. And by the way, having a, a step function to your valuation, there's value to that. You know, by hitting 100 just because you say 100 and the next one's 50, you've lost your momentum and you've you've lost a whole set of investors that would otherwise be following you. Whereas if you build it to 60 to 80 to 100 to 120 over time in a modest manner, 
you are showing that track record and there's value in that track record of valuation growth over time and, and conservatism over time. And it doesn't mean anything to you. There's a bit of dilution here and there, but the real end result is when you sell it at the end. That's the only valuation that matters. That's when you and actually what, get, get, and, you, and get and the other. I mean, the other, the, the, the junk point to that is that, you know, don't raise too much. You know, don't say, and then entrepreneurs will say, I want a hundred million dollar valuation. And I want to raise $50 million. Like, right. what are you going to do with the $50 million? Right. How fast are you going to invest it? And so generally, if you if you get into the numbers and get into the details, they only need 10 or 20. They're not, they're, that other 30 is going to sit on their balance sheet. They will have raised it at this kind of early valuation. It would sit there, and then they, they could have raised it later at a much higher valuation and avoided the, the dilution. So I think entrepreneurs, you know, they need the, the right advisors, and they need people around them that can help them if they haven't been through it. And... Uh, you know, we try and, and, you know, have these conversations with them and, and whether they, you know, we invest five to 20 million, whether they take five or 20, we're indifferent. We want to do the right thing for them. And then we'll put 10 the next year or five the next year at the right valuation, whenever that is. We'd rather them stay in control of their companies longer. And far too often entrepreneurs make that early bad decision to take too much money or right. lock themselves in an evaluation that doesn't matter and is way too high to ever beat and they get into the spiral of, of, of negativity and, and it's hard to overcome. So those numbers that are being discussed at, let's say, a senior or executive leadership team level or a board level, is that being shared with the internal team as well so that they clearly understand what they're working towards? Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, the way we get pretty geeky about it, I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is music to your ears, too, knowing you. But, um, you know, we start out with these targets. And, and so I'll get a little mathy here for a moment, but, you know, so we started with target. Let's say that, you know, this, this product line has a $20 million target this year to go get $20 million of new logo. Great. So then we say, okay, of the 20 million, how much has marketing historically contributed in terms of marketing sourced business? And we say, just for simple math, let's say, well, of the 20, um, you know, history would indicate that marketing can go do can go find 10 and, and my sales guys would be like, yeah, you, you know, you're not doing the 10 you're, you know, you're warming up the 10, whatever. Um, but you know, marketing can go with the interacting with the market. We, we feel marketing can go contribute, you know, 10 million to that. And then we just walk it back and we say, okay, for 10 million, we know we win about one in three deals. So we're going to need enough deals to put 30 million in the pipeline. And if our average ASP is X, we know we sell about one in four. Uh, uh, we set, we, you know, we go backwards from the win to the SQL to the MQL to the lead. And then we say, okay, to go get this many leads in MQLs, we got to do this much in paid search, this much in organic. We're going to go to these events. We're going to run these webinars. We're going to do affiliates. We're going to do G2, you know, you name it. And this is our kind of program to go get those number of leads that would yield that amount. So That'll eventually yeah. help us hit that target. Right. So long, long answer to a short question is everyone should have, everyone in marketing has the bookings target, you know, on their right. monitor. But what are we trying to achieve? Let's start with the foundational elements. What are some of the pieces that you try to ensure are in place with every single company you're investing in? I mean, one of the things we want to do right off the bat is really clearly identify the ICP, the ideal customer profile. Who are we selling to? 
who's going to get the most utility out of the company's products. And what that could result in is doubling down in that market or those markets. So market segmentation is really, really important. And I'll give you an example. We, We invested in a business. It was a product lifecycle management software company. What does that mean? Well, they uh, it's a place where you store and track the bill of materials for complex manufacturing uh, businesses. And this company was selling to about 11 different uh, industries. And it turns out when you really dig into the data, two of those industry verticals were driving the bulk of the revenue. Those verticals uh, retained better and they cost less to service. And they were big markets. They were big enough for us to build a really valuable company. So we got aligned with the senior management team and got the company focused on just those two industries and cascaded that throughout the business. So what that meant was sales team focused on those two verticals, splitting the sales team, all of our marketing effort on those two verticals. We took hand raisers elsewhere, but all of the defined effort on those segments of the market. The company even took quotas up between 20 and 40% over two years. Now that's that's pretty substantial. And more sales reps hit their number uh, during our hold. uh, And and what does that mean? It means those sales reps also made more money, right? And they sold better business. So where do we end up? We got a lower customer acquisition cost we had stickier customers who are, they got high NPS, they're going to stick around, they're going to buy more from us. It's also going to drive net revenue retention. So you end up with a business that is going to continue to grow, but also is going to get profitable as well, walking its way to rule of 40. It was a really great outcome for the management team uh, and for JMI. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about segmentation, right? Because a lot of companies even horizontal ones or verticalized ones, they try to be everything to everyone and really understanding which customers are either your NPS promoters or stay with you the longest and have lower churn rates or end up expanding their accounts with you over time. Really digging into the data and understanding that is a key first step. Doesn't product marketing or messaging and positioning and things like that play a big role? Because enabling a rep like that at the front lines, they may have the data in terms of who they're going after, but what is the right messaging that they're putting out in front of the target customer? And, and is that aligned with what we want to say to those folks? So how much work is being done there to make sure it's it's a uniform experience for the end customer? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, a lot of software companies and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna generalize here. Uh, you know, you have a charismatic founder who can go out and can sell a lot of times selling themselves, right? They, they go out, they've got all this industry experience. They get this vision for the company. It's like the book crossing the chasm and you can win a lot. You can win those visionary customers that way, but it's really hard to scale. And the majority of customers are not going to buy that way. With the majority of customers, they one need to see how this is going to be connected to their business objectives. You know, it's not just going to be the person who's hands on keyboard with the, with the, you know, we're, we work in software, but you know, hands on whatever tool it is that you're selling. They're not there. It's got to connect to some kind of business need and business objective. They're going to want some proof that it works. Um, You're going to need some kind of a demo. You're going to have objection handlers. You're going to have competitors. Um, All of those things 
very few salespeople are going to be able to come in without without being given that and figure that out on the fly, right? That's a very low hit rate. So companies that don't enable their sales team with messaging, with training, with 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 tools, will tend to have a really high churn rate for salespeople, and they'll be frustrated and, and whatnot. Usually, companies get to a certain scale, and they say, you know, it would be much more efficient than having one in twenty salespeople work is. Let's capture this information. Let's have the tools. Let's have a sales process. Let's have the right systems in place. And then now you just need somebody who can, you know, can learn those stories, use those tools, and just is more responsible and hustles um, and good at good at good on their feet. You're going to have a much higher hit rate on salespeople. You're going to have a lower sales churn. You're going to see way more sellers get to eighty percent, get to one hundred percent that way. So you are right. Some of that is what's the story, and you need. You know, you need a 30 second, you need a 10 second version of it, 30 second version, a two minute version, a 10 minute version, and you know, like a 30 minute version of your story for the different sales interactions you're going to have. And you're going to need an early version, which is get them excited about the problem, not really talk about the product. You're going to need middle where you really talk about the product and you need an end where you mitigate any kind of risks or hesitations that they have. And I've seen companies and we audit businesses all the time that have tons and spend and a PE investor will ask us to figure out where the efficiencies are. And specifically on paid media, I've seen companies continue to spend on paid media when their LTV, the CAC ratio is incredibly low or their payback period can be two, three, even seven years I've seen in worst case scenarios. But they're just, they're just continuing to spend because either they're in a hyper competitive market where let's say there's two or three behemoths in the room and the cost per click is 40 or $50 a click, or they're just, they're looking at it at just a blended level and haven't looked at the channel, like detailed, like campaign level reporting to see, see what's working and what's not. And it might turn out that there's two heroes and the rest are just being pulled up by the averages of, of those specific campaigns. Absolutely. Yeah. I think going to that next level of analysis is so important and also your targets probably need to change based on what you mentioned, right? Like if your close rates are deteriorating because of the market or if your sales cycle is getting longer or your conversion rates are, or your ASP is going down, like it changes the whole calculus at the top. And sometimes, you know, if marketing's not super connected into those other business metrics, they might have a status quo based on targets that, you know, a year ago were efficient. But those targets need to change, right? And, the, and we have to make a change. I think also you can get in this sense of, um, you know, it's almost the status quo. It's like, well, we've always done it this way and we're just going to keep doing it and try to get a little bit better. You know, in some cases, these shocks are actually really positive because it forces you to kind of go back to zero and rethink how are we approaching things? And is there a better way? Um, and a lot of times you find these unlocks by being forced to innovate. And that's been really exciting to see like, oh, wow, I was forced to cut my PPC budget 50% and I actually didn't really see any impact to in my inbound flow. Now I have, you know, maybe I can get back 10% of that to allocate to something else and create totally. a new program that's so much more scalable. Um, what made me think of something as you were talking through that is just how, how much of a focus, given that M&A is a part of your value creation philosophy, how much effort is being put into the upsell cross-sell side and then also on, on pricing because 
that yeah. ends up be, becoming a way to expand those accounts or, or generate more revenue from the accounts that we've already landed. Yeah, no, those are uh, really uh, significant value creation lovers. Um, you, you, they're, um, so we do do a lot of M&A and then cross-sell is uh, something we put a lot of energy into. And I think we're getting more and more sophisticated at it. In fact, we just kind of wrote a playbook on uh, how to do cross-sell and all the considerations. And just the reality is, uh, you, you know, what the data would suggest if you look at, you know, decades of M&A, um, you know, cross-sell uh, uh, success far, far lags, um, you know, the goals that were set when the deal uh, was conceived. Um, and it's because there's a lot of things that you have to get right in driving cross-sell. And so we put a lot of energy in, you know, just like you have a targeting model for new logo, you need to have a targeting model for cross-sell, for example, to say, well, who are the account? Well, and the benefit of cross-sell is, you know a lot more about the target account because they're already a customer. So then you think about, well, what are all the attributes um, of uh, someone who would be a good fit for this? Uh, and then, you know, where are we housed? Um, uh, and then you have to think about, you know, what's the selling skill required and uh, are you selling to the same buyer? So there's a whole there's a whole framework of all these different uh, elements that we look at to figure out, um, first of all, where to target, but then what's the right coverage model um, to go execute that? Um, because sometimes you just need like uh, the, the rep to focus on it. You just say, hey, I'm going to give you some extra comp. Uh, but sometimes you need specialized resources. It could just be a BDR or maybe you need a sales engineer. Or sometimes it actually is just different enough, you know, very different uh, sales cycle, very different solution complexity, uh, different buyers. So even though you're selling to the same account, um, um, you know, it really could be extremely different. I mean, a good example of that that I think most people know is like, look at Oracle when they're selling, you know, what they call tech, which is like database and middleware versus apps, when, for example, you know, financials, uh, you know, uh, financial management software or HR software. They're just super different. So that's why um, those sales organizations are completely different. So you have to, um, so when they make those acquisitions, so you have to just think it through in a very, very structured way. Uh, and then what you also have to do is just measure it rigorously. So you should then be looking at, okay, we've done all this work to figure it out and we've educated the customer. There's so many things and so many elements to get right. But then you have to measure it to say, okay, well, let me look rep by rep, like month by month. Are you um, uh, creating pipeline or are you having meetings? Are you creating pipeline? Are you progressing that pipeline? Are you winning deals? What's your win rate? And what you're invariably going to see is there are going to be certain reps who are much better at it than others. So, and that's natural. So it's not like, hey, I came up with this great enablement program and everyone's perfect. No, there's a huge learning curve. And so I think that's where, if you're really serious about cross-sell, you have to be intensive uh, about huddling uh, on a continuous basis and the right frequencies weekly to say, how's it going? What's working? What's not? Who's doing it? Who's not? And then, you know, let's problem solve and strengthen it. So I think the companies that are just really rigorous and structured uh, and committed to it um, are the ones that um, have more success. But there's a crazy amount of variance across all effectiveness. So that's a big there's some phenomenal insight there. I think your point about the industry data that says cross sales are often overestimated. I think that's a really great point because I think often when we're modeling, you look at a bolt on or an add on and you're like, obviously our current customer set will be a good fit for this other product that we're buying, but that doesn't always work out because maybe needs are different or the products are different or, or the sales cycles are different. And I think the other point that you said, that's I think worth 
uh, highlighting is this internal segmentation work because we talk a lot about the external, how big is our TAM and segmenting that, but within the existing customer base, who are the, who are the customers that would be ideal fits for the cross-sell and upsell so that we truly understand the, the white space revenue potential there? Because I think that's often overestimated as well. Um, and then the other piece that jumped out is that I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the product side and the packaging side to actually make it worthwhile to even, even if you have a good fit customer, sure. you kind of have to approach them in the right way with the right kind of offer. Let's say two companies are looking for CMOs, right? They're, the needs feel like they would be fairly similar uh, across those businesses, but obviously that's not the case, right? So uh, every, every business is different and the marketing needs are going to look a lot different. So how do you go about calibrating and identifying those differences and figuring out what is the right type of candidate and what should go in that scorecard? Absolutely. So you know far better than I the unique intricacies of each CMO and what they can bring in terms of value to uh, each individual company. But you know the way that we look at each role is not just by way of the competencies and experience sets and sort of functional focuses, but also by way of who this person is and how they operate and the types of environments in which they've gained them. So CMO, for example, are you looking for somebody to focus on product marketing? Are you looking for somebody to focus on demand generation? Um, you know, is this a, a corporate marketing function uh, focus and certainly the combination thereof? How are we thinking about what this business needs to accomplish and tying that to the skill set of the CMO that we're looking for? Of course, not one is, you know, sort of uh, all in the same because you can also then once you identify the functional focuses, you're looking at the environments in which they've been able to gain these skill sets. Is this an organic versus inorganic growth play? Are we looking at net new market opportunity or penetration of the white space? Are we looking at global expansion? Or are we focused in North America or otherwise? Are we looking at direct or are we looking at indirect marketing experience? How important is the channel or the partnerships piece, how important is this motion? Are we looking at PLG? Are we looking at ABM? Are we looking at a combination thereof? And of course, the breakout beyond that on the PLG side are all things that we are covering up front through the intake. And then we're pressure testing through that calibration exercise. So as to ensure that we have a clear command of, you know, yes, we need a product marketing focus leader, Yes, our motion tends to be velocity, but indirect is increasingly important for us. And yes, we're willing to trade off on global because we've got some global expertise elsewhere in the organization or no, we are not. And if that's the case, you know, here's where we're aligning on compensation so as to ensure that we can attract this type of background to drive success across the organization. Just from subjective, just hearing you talk about it and thinking about what the reality of a PLG company would be. It would be improvements in conversion rates, improvements in net retention and, and things like that. But just want to hear, like, what are some opportunity areas that you're seeing? Yeah, it's a great question, Shiv. So, you know, we have this Gemini platform and what we tell founders and they usually agree with is that we have built basically this data layer and data infrastructure at the Camber fund level. So we have a, a data team and a tech team at Camber that's built internal software and processes. This software does a few things. It plugs into to the systems of all of our portfolio companies and it helps them and us make better data-driven growth decisions. But it also, once, once fully deployed, 
it collects over 500 data points, starting with product usage and engagement. So it offers product analytics. And so what that tells us is we're, we're usually easily able to define an ICP or a high value customer, but we're also able to define what we call healthy MRR, healthy revenue, uh, because along the growth journey, a lot of the founders of these PLG companies may be technical in nature, and they've built an incredible product that serves a use case, but they may be facing headwinds and trying to go, go up market and sell to larger customers. And in order to do that, you have to realize what those needs are. And so finding those high value customer segments within the base and then building products for them is part of our core thesis heading into investments. Let's say we are talking about geographic expansion into APAC. How would you go about that with a particular business to help them expand into that type of a region? Yeah. Um, so great question. So we start with, so the core is really understanding what their objectives are and their strategic uh, uh, imperatives. So really thinking through what, what is it about the, the market expansion that they're looking for? Do they want to actually leverage the technical and, uh, and sales and business development talent in the other markets and regions? Are they trying to uh, expand and, and adapt into different types of multi, uh, multinational conglomerates that are headquartered in other regions? How do you think about their, their long-term goal and where they want to be as an organization? And how do we make sure that, that, uh, that those long-term objectives are solved and then de develop out a plan and strategy? From there, we then have, uh, through the experience of a lot of uh, the, the partners and employees at B Capital, we actually do have a lot of relationships in region. And so how do we make sure that they're connected uh, through through a mix of people that can help them hire the right team members in, develop the right set of channel partners, uh, make sure we're thinking through the legal, accounting, uh, uh, finance thresholds and uh, and requirements that they're going to need to take take into consideration. So there are, there are, and and who are some vendors that they can actually be working with in in partnership as well. So. We try to broaden out uh, and make sure that it's a comprehensive recommendation uh, with near-term tactical solutions. Yeah, so a lot of it seems like connecting the companies with the right people and the right resources across whatever function you're looking at or industry or vertical or market or geography that you're trying to expand, expand the business into. Would you say that's a big chunk of where the efforts going into is getting the right people connected or people in the right seats? You're absolutely right that that's a big part of it. What I'd say, though, is probably even more important than that is really asking them the questions that they might not have been thinking about. So we've got a, a, a playbook that really is quite thoughtful and comprehensive around making sure, hey, have you have you considered these elements of your international expansion and the implications? So even even minor things of like, hey, when you've got a customer success team you've, uh, and, and you've got customer support needs, will you have the coverage in regional time zone that these, these uh, account managers need? And will they know, be able to address regional specific issues that come up? Um, are you prepared for that? Is, is, is it designed to be able to, to uh, make sure that you're actually going to be successful when you go into market? 
Right. Right. And and it's almost like a diagnostic at that point where you're trying to ask them the questions and then and build the strategy against based on whatever work that they've done internally. So how big is your team right now? Uh, three full-time engineers and then uh, three partners. Um, only one of us is actually full-time. Danny is full-time. Got it. And, and, and how do you manage, and I get the model and how you're explaining that, but I guess the more of these entities that you acquire, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a common saying, whether you're doing a small project or a big project, it takes the same amount of time in some ways, because you kind of got to give it all of you, right? So the more of these entities that you have, you kind of have constant competing priorities. And so how are you prioritizing between these entities, even with the, with the, the shared services model? So we stack rank first for the most recent one. So the first three months of any net new acquisition, we try not to do multiple at the same time. That's going to be the focus, the newest one. Um, and then once that's sort of on some kind of incremental feature path, uh, then we can sort of stack rank by um, size, right? What is, what is most important to the portfolio? Um, and then, of course, there's little things like, oh, here's a growth experiment that we've been wanting to try, et cetera. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, it's, it's whatever we've bought most recently and then whatever's the biggest. Um, but it, you know, I, I will say something like I get the reason why everybody goes bigger in this business. Why does everybody try and buy bigger? It's because being able to hire dedicated staff to an individual portfolio company is like, you know, a huge blessing, right? That's a miracle. That's amazing. We don't have that luxury. Um, not, not yet anyways. Um, and so the, the more that we can buy these products that are in the single purpose realm, um, product led growth and nearly complete as, as a single promise to the customer, um, it is not true to say that each, each one of these is the same amount of work. Screenshot was not that much work, um, after we rebuilt the platform, which took me, I don't know, like three weeks. Um, now when we bought a sort of less, a, a, like a not product led growth, more of like a sales, uh, a sales led growth um, company. Like we bought a, 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 y, a YC company. They were doing um, enterprise, like it was, it was just pure enterprise sale. The details don't really matter. Other than operationally, it was like very enterprise sales, right? So small number of customers, extremely high touch. Operationally, that was very, very difficult because it took all of Danny's time to handhold these bigger customers, um, even though the revenue numbers weren't that big yet. Um, and so at some point we decided uh, to let go of WorkCloud and just focus on product-led growth companies. So now sort of our buy box outside of the fund we just raised is product-led growth, um, single purpose, um, and then, you know, kind of secondarily, when, when appropriate, we'll look at like a distressed venture deal, um, sometimes knowing full well that, that uh, it might be a sales led thing. And, um, and we might be we might be okay with that. But we tend to default now to product led growth. Yeah, I, I think there's, I don't know if it's an education gap or like a cultural thing where we think about growing companies, we think about the cool stuff like strategy or product or marketing and sales. But the more like pedantic stuff like accounting and finance and cash flow and, and things like that kind of get overlooked. So like on our side, for example, so we're a management consulting firm, fully bootstrapped, um, profitable from day one. And one, one thing that we always try to do is we try to only hire when we have 12 months of runway. That's like one 
example of how we make decisions. And we were talking about this this week because we're thinking about adding some more team members to our team. And I was doing some cash flow forecasting and just out loud, I kind of blurred out, you know, it's like in general, you're told it's like strategy people cash. That's like the scaling up model. It's like, what's the strategy? Who do you need? How much money do you need? But in this type of models, like your cash flow affects your strategy just as much as your strategy affects your cash. Um, and I think that's one of the things that founders don't connect the dots on, right? Because um, that's not where their head is. But really keeping a track of like how much cash is going in and out every month. Do we have that? Do we know how many invoices are due? When is our AR coming in? How much do we owe in terms of our AP and payables? And, and all the like foreign exchange risk, like little things like that can can make such a big difference in, in your cash flow position. So if you're not really on top of that, that becomes a pretty easy way to come in and have a pretty good handle on the business. I I think you're you're absolutely right. And we don't we don't talk about it like that, although I think I might start because I like the way you're <laughs> like the way you steal some of your management consulting speak. Um, but <laughs> But I, but that is in principle. What we're saying is, look, this is how much money we have coming in. You know, this is what it's costing us to bring in that money, and so this is what we have left. And you know, and what levers do we have? So you know, for example, you know, we we came in recently. We just said, look, we need to raise the price, and and they're like, well, we have contracts with customers, and we can't. Customers will leave, and we're like, well, if we raise the price by fifty percent, and we lose, you know, twenty percent of our customers, like. And we know this is a really sticky product and we go to our customers and we're like, look, like it's just, I said, you know, right now that this is a good business, but the unit economics are fundamentally unprofitable. So what are we all doing here? If your customers won't pay what it actually costs to run this product, then this is not a real business. And, and founders just don't, they don't necessarily, um, you know, think about that. They don't even, and so, Everything is about if we want to spend more, if we want, can we, where can this cash come from? You know, can we reduce costs? Can we increase revenue? Can we bring on new customers? But in some ways, bringing on new customers is the, it's the last thing. First thing we're doing is saying, how do we make today's revenue more profitable? Because that we already have. I mean, growth is an unknown. And I, I think too many founders see growth as, I, either a given or there's like, oh yeah, I will sign this deal. I'm like, maybe, It'll, but yeah, maybe right. not. Like, but right. you have the deals right now. So what could we do with this? And there you have it, folks, a compilation of all the best episodes and takeaways from the guests that we've had on the podcast so far. Once again, I want to thank you for being a loyal listener and paying attention to all the content that we've been putting on with this podcast. As we head into next year, look out for some incredible episodes every single week starting in January, where we're going to have even more investors, advisors, and operating partners and, and operators just in general that to provide amazing insights for you to grow your respective companies and your portfolios. And so with that said, thank you very much and signing off for 2023.